Well, welcome to church, everybody. And if I haven't met you, my name is Pastor Mike Lotzer. If you're watching us via live stream, hope that uh, you are doing so in a cozy, warm spot with a nice cup of coffee or a warm beverage. It is cold out there. And uh, it is good to be together digitally as we continue in our sermon series called When God Disappears. And if you have lived more than, I don't know, 10 years or so, and sometimes younger than that, you will come to find, we all will, that there are seasons where it feels like God has disappeared. He hasn't disappeared, we know, as those who follow Christ and who have a relationship with him. We know that he's always there, and yet it really does feel as if he has disappeared. And perhaps the most acute feeling like this happens in those seasons of life when we are going through pain that doesn't have a direct explanation. And really, that's what we're experiencing as a nation and as a world right now. We don't know where the coronavirus necessarily came from as, as far as um, did, did somebody cause this. It's not somebody's fault per se, but it is impacting all of us in profound ways. It's really turned the world upside down for a season. And there is that sense for all of us, I think, if we're honest, that it feels like God is a bit distant. And so we're using this sermon series in this time to, to really look at a man who really didn't deserve to suffer like he suffered. Job was an upright, good, godly person. And God allows a tremendous amount of suffering in his life for some mysterious purposes. At the end of the book, we will read that, that Job comes out through it stronger, more dependent, more worship-centered on God. He is blessed actually because and through the suffering, and yet Job just goes through this excruciating experience. Last week, we talked about how not to comfort people like Job in their pain, and we looked at uh, three of Job's friends and Job's wife, and we took our cues from them as, as far as what not to do. They made some pretty big blunders. They tried to fix everything. They, they blamed Job for his own pain and assumed that, you know, it was Job's sin that caused all this. And, and we said, don't do that. And this week we're asking the question, uh, okay, if that's not what we're supposed to do, what do we do? So the question uh, this week would be, what are we supposed to do? How to comfort people in pain? How do you do that? I'd like to uh, just read this short text first, just straight from the NIV. It won't be on the screen, and then we'll take each chunk um, on the screen in a moment here. We're in Job chapter 3, and this comes right after the part where his wife basically looks at Job, who has lost all of his children and his wealth and his health, and, and she says, why don't you just give it up and curse God and die? And don't be too hard on Job's wife. She's lost all her children, and she can't depend on her husband because he's sick, and, and she's speaking out of a place of profound grief, but Job responds and says, should I just take the, the good things from God and not expect some hard things? And, and so he really is described as a person that is honest about his pain, but in that he doesn't sin. He doesn't charge God with, with evil intent. And then we read chapter 2, verse 11, about Job's three friends, their initial a descent on the scene. And from this little chunk of scripture, we can actually learn some really helpful ways to comfort people in pain. 
When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. So they went to him to sympathize and comfort him. Verse 12, when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. They sat on the ground with him for seven days. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, the first thing I'd like us to to notice about how his friends responded is that they showed up. And if you want to be the type of person that can actually encourage other people in pain, this is the first and most basic fundamental piece to comforting those who are hurting. You show up. How do you comfort people in pain? You show up. Why is showing up so important? Well, if you think about it, think back to that time in your life where you were really going through it and someone who you really wanted to show up didn't show up. And you you just waited for the phone to call, or you waited for someone to knock on your door, or you waited for that handwritten note, or you waited for them to come. I do a lot of funerals in my line of work, and it's interesting. I've heard from a number of people who assume that they won't really be uh, aware of the people who come to the funeral because they'll be in just this fog of grief. And that's true for some people, but I've heard from a number of grieving people that even though there was a huge funeral, they remembered every person who made it to the funeral. For some reason, they were able to see through the fog of grief, and it meant so much to them that people would fly in and show up. Now, we live in a moment culturally that's uh, difficult to put it mildly when it comes to physically showing up. And so I wonder if we can take the creativity that God has empowered within each of us and we can brainstorm individually and collectively. What would it look like to really show up for the people in your life who are hurting? I mean, there's a big debate right now. How long does the coronavirus live on surfaces like paper or metal or plastic? And I've heard different numbers. Not to be cheesy, but do you know how long encouragement and comfort can live on surfaces like paper, like a little note that you write? That will live forever. That has no expiration date. And so what would it look like today in response to this point of the message for you to pull out the hand sanitizer and wipe down your pen and a little card and make sure you are germ-free, and then you write out a heartfelt, handwritten note to that person in your life who you suspect is really going through it. I read an interesting post on uh, Instagram about a woman who was really going through it last year. Her son took his own life, and she had this to say one year later after that horrific tragedy. She writes this, sometimes the people who love you become the people who save you. I hope you never have to learn this, but life is hard and terrible things happen, so here's some good news. When your world implodes, heroes will emerge in the chaos. You won't have to look for them. You won't have to ask for them. You won't have to tell them what to do or where to go or when. When my son took his own life, these women showed up. She goes on. They hadn't even been home from our annual girls' trip for a day when they heard the news, but she lists their names. 
grabbed their still-packed bags and went straight back to the airport. Within hours, their arms were wrapped around me and they created a wall of protection, a wall around me, between me and anything that threatened to scatter the pieces of my newly shattered heart. The next day, Jen walked through my door and started feeding people. She nurtured my body and cared for my soul when I couldn't possibly have done so myself. Two weeks later, Sarah came to stand vigil at my son's lakeside memorial, a source of strength and light when I had none of my own. And when it was time for me to pack up my house because I couldn't stand to be alone in the house with all those memories, Tara flew in from Haiti and helped me to manage the painful process. When the very worst things happened, I didn't have to ask for help. It arrived in the form of long-forged sisterhoods, friendships, a group of women who know me so well they knew exactly where to go and what to do and when to do it. They changed my life a long time ago, but this time last year, they saved my life. Now, one thing that she writes on that, on that post that I take issue with is, is the claim that when, when tragedy strikes, you won't have to look for heroes. The sad reality is some of you will have to because you have not really taken the intentional time of investing in deep relationships with other people. You have lived in social isolation before social distancing was a thing. If you notice in her post, it was that forged group of friends that really came through when the chips were down, when she got the news that her son took his own life. And this really begs the question, are we given an important opportunity in this moment of social distancing to really reassess our lives and say, do we want to live this isolated or, or is it maybe really strategic and wise for us to invest in relationships that go deeper than we're currently going? At Mercy Road, we want to be a church that helps foster this, but, but I've learned after serving a number of churches, you, a church staff can't do this for, for people. At the end, we all have to form those friendships. And maybe for you, it's just going to start today by saying, Lord, would you bring some people in my life, even in this season, that I can go deep with people who will show up? Because the first thing to remember when it comes to helping and comforting those in pain is to show up for friends when they are in pain. So we show up. We show up. And in Job's case, the Hebrew word friend is rea, means covenantal companion. They may have been coming out of obligation or affection or a little bit of both. And that's true today. It was definitely true in the ancient world. Uh, today, we tend to choose our friends based on mutual interests, and uh, you like that too. And in the ancient world, it was a lot more based on geography and who's got your back because they're in the same tribe. And so there was this idea of obligation to show up. And, and though I like our modern version of friendship because we get to choose our friends and choice is always great, I wonder if we've lost this sense of obligation that is helpful that binds a community together. Maybe today we need to think about this. Is there someone in my life that I should be showing up for that I have not been showing up for? And even if the affection isn't there, even if we haven't talked in a long time, is the right thing, the God-honoring thing to do to start showing up to check in, to ask to have a Zoom video chat, to send them 
some groceries or a gift card to send them a handwritten note, to leave them a voicemail, to give them a text. There are numerous ways to show up, but the main thing is we have to show up. When, fr- when Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar heard about all the troubles that had come on, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement. They showed up. Secondly, if you're taking notes, we don't just need to show up to help people. We need to sync or synchronize up. And we know how to pair our digital devices with the car stereo. And we know how to pair our Bluetooth with our computer or our iPhone. Do you know that one helpful way we comfort those in pain is that we pair or synchronize our pain, our emotions to the people we are caring for? In the ancient world, there was a physicality to this type of synchronization that we don't have today. And it comes through in the Hebrew that the text is written in. If you, if you read here, they set out from their homes and met together to sympathize and comfort him. Those two words, that's the intent of showing up. And if you look at the actual Hebrew for the word sympathize, it is nude in the Hebrew. The NIV translates it sympathize, but it actually means literally in Hebrew to flop around. Why would it mean that? Well, in the ancient world, when tragedy struck, grief was a very physical thing. You, you fell to your knees, you screamed, you allowed yourself to feel and to flop around. Some of you have had things happen to you in your life that are so incredibly hard that you've, you've had a physical reaction to this. When I was an army chaplain, I used to do death notifications on a regular basis. And when you would knock on that door and they would see you in the dress uniform, you would see people fall to their knees. When, when you shared the news that their loved one, their husband, their son was not coming home from war, they would fall. Some would get in the fetal position on the kitchen floor and they would scream. And we were trained for those death notifications to say very little, but, but, but just be physically present and to mirror with their experience. That didn't mean we would flop around, but in the ancient world, it it would mean that. Why would you do this? Why would you flop around? Why would uh, the text choose a word that means to flop around? Well, we know from the neurosciences that there is a phenomenon called mirror sharing, mirror sharing neurons. And, And these neurons help us to empathize and sympathize with other human beings by mimicking their facial expressions. I was watching the news recently. Um, I think it was the Today Show. And uh, Hoda, we all know the anchor Hoda, was responding to a short interview over a video chat with Drew Brees, a quarterback from the Saints. Drew Brees had just donated $5 million to the city of New Orleans that has been especially hit hard this last week by a coronavirus with the contraction rate and the death. Now, Hoda is from uh, Louisiana, and she was just responding to video interviews of different people from New Orleans, and, and she started to mirror share those neurons in her brain started to be impacted, she began to feel what they felt. Now, of course, she's from that home state, so she had an advantage there, but but she was so moved that she couldn't compose herself, and she had to kind of pass the news anchor duties on to another anchor. And it was just this touching moment 
I wonder if we have lost a little bit of this. The ancient world understood how to do this. They would come to somebody right when they heard about the news and they would mimic their pain. This is why, by the way, we get down on the level of our children when they're hurting. Now, I have to just confess as, as your pastor, one of the things I've not done very well in the last few weeks is really empathize to the degree one would think you should as a pastor to some of my own family members. My children, like many of your children, probably have felt a heightened sense of anxiety with this coronavirus. You know, we watch the news and they hear things like that. And, and this is a scary thing from their eyes. And so it's very important as parents, we, we display a contagious calm to them and we remind them that God is in control no matter what happens. And yet behavior is impacted in the lives of children. Mine are not excluded. And my, my youngest, my sweet little Adeline, has been crying a lot more lately and not over things that one would associate a crying response, you know, things that seem kind of silly from an adult's response. And I heard the words come out of my mouth a few uh, days ago, stop crying, you don't need to cry. Now, I think most parents know intuitively, if not from psychological resources and uh, good sermons and preaching and, and just education, that when you tell a child not to cry, you're really teaching them to kind of stuff their emotions. And that doesn't really do a lot of good, healthy things for a child. And so I, I had to kind of reel that back. And I'm trying to explain to my almost four-year-old daughter why, Dad, sorry that he said that. And sometimes we need to cry, and it's okay to cry. For some of us, we grew up in environments where you were not allowed to cry. I was shaped by the military where, you know, you could almost take Tom Hanks' famous saying from A League of Their Own, there's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in coronavirus. And that has a way of seeping in, doesn't it? And the problem with that philosophy and that personal style is that we're not as equipped and intentional and instinctive in mirroring the sadness in the very people we're trying to comfort. If you fall into the same camp that I fall into where this is hard for you, my challenge to you, my prayer for you is to pay attention as you show up for people in pain, try to get on their level. Try to feel what they feel. We know, as I said from neuroscience, that when we mimic their facial expressions, when we let ourselves feel their feelings, even if we don't agree that that's the appropriate feeling, that has a profound way of comforting them, and it brings us together. It's like pairing two devices. So we show up show up, and then we sync up to their pain, even if it involves physicality, flopping around, shedding tears. But that is not uh, where we end here. We, we learn a third thing from Job's friends. We shut up. Yes, that's not a typo. We actually, um, at this point in the comforting process, need to shut up and shiva. What is shiva? Shiva in Hebrew just means seven, the number seven. And Shiva is an ancient tradition of showing up and not saying a word. And we see it practiced here among Job's friends. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a what to him. 
No one said a word because they saw how great his suffering was. If you have really gone through some difficult things in your life, you will have noticed that there are moments where we don't want an explanation. We don't want a sermon. We don't want a solution. We don't need a diagnosis. We just need a friend. We need somebody to listen to us. We need someone to show up, to synchronize their feelings to ours. But we also need someone to realize that when that flopping around, wailing, I'm in shock stage passes, it transitions into a stage where we just need someone to be silent, but to show that they have solidarity with us. We just need someone to be with us. Shiva is an interesting concept because it literally means seven. A lot of people and Orthodox Jews to this day insist that it needs to be seven days. They take this as a literal prescription of time. I really am convinced, based on pastoring a number of people in pain, that seven is really just the ancient number for completeness. Seven days God made the earth and the heavens and all that is in it in creation. So seven is a template. It's not a literal prescription that you have to sit seven days with someone because let's just be real. For some people, they will need you to sit Shiva with them, just be silent with them and eat food with them and be next to them for longer than seven days. And maybe for others, it will be shorter than seven days. We learn from Job's friends trial and error that their mistake was not sitting Shiva long enough. They sat for the appropriate seven days, but what they should have done is they should have not been looking for the seventh day to be completed, but they should have been trying to get a sense from Job, is he ready to talk at this point? Does he want to hear anything that I have to say? What happens in chapter 2 of Job, if you read the context of the story, is that they sit shiva, they do the right thing at first, and then they let Job talk, and Job starts to go in to a real painful, dark place. He said, curse the day that I was born, and he starts talking about how, how sad he is, and it makes his friends uncomfortable. You see, they start to fear that maybe Job's grieving is a little too out there. Maybe he's saying things that are a little her- heretical, and maybe God's going to get mad and punish Job. And then they start to think to themselves, clearly, the world is pretty simple, black and white. Job must be suffering for something he's done. So then their comforting mission turns into a mission to convict Job of sin. And they start to try to make him confess of this deep, dark sin that really we know as the reader isn't there in Job's case. And as we talked about last week, surely Lots of our suffering is a result of our sin or the sin of some, somebody else, but some suffering is mysterious, and God allows it for mysterious purposes, and God is still Lord and sovereign over it and in it, and he can do good things through it, and yet, if we really want to comfort people going through that type of suffering, we need to learn how to shut our mouths. We need to learn to resist the temptation to fix it. There's this video, I think I've showed it here before. It's not 
the nail. It's not about the nail. It's a little bit sexist if you think about it, uh, but you can uh, YouTube this. It's not about the nail, and it's a, a husband and a wife talking, and the wife is talking about her, her head hurts so much, and she's got this aching, and it's like right here, and the husband is listening. He's trying to listen, and he brings up the fact that you do have a nail sticking out of your forehead, and she gets mad at him. She says, it's not about the nail. You keep making it about the nail, and the husband's kind of frustrated. I bet we can get that thing out. And it's just a really funny video. And it's a bit sexist because honestly, in my marriage, I feel like those gender roles are sometimes reversed and we're all different. But the point is, even though the husband in that instance could see the very thing that was causing his wife the most pain, she didn't want him to remove the nail or point out the fact that the pain is coming from the nail. She just wanted him to listen to her. So Shiva is not just about you being silent. It's about you and I actively listening and validating. And if we say anything, it's something like, I'm so sorry. I can't imagine. That must be so painful. This is hard. This is hard for people who get paid at their work environment or in their domestic duties to solve problems and bring solutions and implement strategies that work. And it really does require a different skill set. And yet it's one that we are responsible for. And if we don't learn how to shut up and shiva, we will not be effective counselors. So we show up. We sync up our emotions to their emotions. We shut up and we sit shiva for as long as it takes. This is how we comfort people. But there is one more step to comforting people if we want to be true comforters, and it is this. We shine hope into their pain. Maybe it's because I'm a Minnesotan and our winter lasts so long, but there are these stretches of weather where it is so gloomy for so long that you just kind of go nuts. And we're kind of in one right now. And you look up at the sky and you think, man, social distancing and quarantine would be so much easier if the sun would come out. And then we just love those rays of sun when they do come, but then it seems like they go away. If you think about it, this whole concept of feeling like God has disappeared is very similar to the weather. We feel like we even say things like the sun has disappeared, but but has it? Of course it hasn't. The sun is always there. It's always burning bright. Nothing changes about the sun. Its rays are still there. We are just experiencing the unfortunate symptom of having something in between the sun and us, the clouds the atmospheric conditions, the positioning of the spherical earth that we live on as it spins, whatever the variable is, it's obscuring our experience and our visible sight of the sun, but that does not mean the sun has gone away or has moved. It doesn't move. In the same way, God never moves. He's always there. And even when we don't sense him, he's there. If we want to comfort people, we don't just need to show up and sync up and shut up and sit shiva. We need to be an element of warmth and light in people's lives. Because I'm convinced that in those seasons when God really feels distant 
In those seasons when it feels like everything is gray and gloomy, God uses one method in particular to assure human beings that he is still there. He uses people. He uses people like you and like me. And when we show up and we, when we sync up and sit shiva and when we invest in people's lives and really try to comfort them like God would want us to comfort them, guess what happens? It's like we pierce that gloom, that sky that, that they're staring at with just this incredible ray of sunlight. And even if it's just a momentary ray of sunlight, it reminds all of us that this storm will pass, this will not last forever, this weather pattern will go away eventually, and we will see the sun in all its brilliance. We'll get vitamin D back. We will feel the warmth and the light of God again when that which is obscuring our view moves. Consider today, Mercy Road Church, and every individual listening, that you have a calling on your life and one of those callings, one, a part of that calling, is to be a ray of warmth and light to people who are suffering under what feels to them like just a never-ending gloomy sky. You know, when, when God wanted to comfort us in, in eternal gloom, the whole human experience with all of our war and famine and disease and suffering and sin, he sent a person to do it. He sent himself, his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ sat Shiva with us. For 30 years, he said very little. And then for three years, he spoke the words that bring true warmth and light. And they are many. This is one example, John 10, 10 through 11. He starts out by saying, the thief, he's, he's talking about Satan, demonic forces and the sin in our world. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. He's, he's validating. There's going to be hard times. But then he makes that turn and he speaks these words of life to you. And hear this today. Jesus says, I have come that they, that you might have life and life to the full. I am the good shepherd. He's comparing himself to a shepherd. And then he defines it. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Do you hear, do you hear that? Do you feel that ray of light? The God of the universe says, I love you so intimately, I'll die for you. Let that pierce through the gloom for a moment. Later in John's gospel, he says, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own house. Whoa, does that feel relevant today? You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. He's predicting his own betrayal to his disciples and what he must do to die for the sins of human beings. He's talking about the consequences of sin, the isolation scattered to your own homes, and that's kind of what we're experiencing right now, but then he makes the turn. I have told you these things not to bum you out. That's my translation but so that you may have peace. Jesus says, I'm telling you this so that you may have peace. In other words, he's saying, don't be surprised when troubles come. I'm with you. And then this last line, these words are so helpful in this season. In this world, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Count on that. 
but take heart. I have overcome the world. We're gonna have trouble. We don't know how this coronavirus thing ends. It's hard. I validate that. But Jesus Christ has overcome the world. We have eternity to look forward to. He is present with us right now, whether we feel him or not. And he has equipped the church, the body of Christ, to be rays of sunlight to each other, to show up, to sink up, to shut up, and to sit shivya, and in so doing, to shine light into the darkest places. May that be your calling this week. Father God, thank you for this word. Help us to be people who comfort others in pain. I pray over Mercy Road Church. I pray a prayer of protection over everyone hearing this message. Would you be close to each of us? Would you equip us to care for others? Help us to show up, Lord, to sink up, to shut up, to sit shiva. Help us to be the light of the world. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.